Um, this morning, we are starting a new series, and we're going to go for three weeks, and we're going to be looking、um, at a series entitled "Jesus: Power Overall." And we're going to be looking at three、um, encounters, three snapshots、um, in the in the Gospel according to Mark.、Um, so Mark's account of Jesus' life. And we're going to look at three encounters and snapshots, which really gem- demonstrate for us,、uh, for me,、uh, Jesus' power over all things. So this, today we're going to look at Jesus' power over nature.、Uh, next week we're going to look at Jesus' power over sickness and death, and then the final week、uh, we're going to look at Jesus and his power over the demonic.、Um, so that's what we're looking at. And I guess the first question is, why are we doing that? Why are we looking at Jesus and his power over all things? There's two reasons for me. Uh, one is if you if you were to go to the average Londoner and would say to them,、um, "Who is Jesus?" I think probably the average Londoner would say something like, "Well, he was a nice guy who told people to be nice to each other." That's、um, a quote from、uh, Douglas Adams, who wrote the the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which、uh, Jen and I were listening to as we were driving around Italy,、um, and we, and he said Jesus was a nice guy who told people to be nice to each other, and that's the prevailing prevailing view of of, of probably most Londoners. But actually, I think as you look into the gospel accounts, if you look at the accounts of Jesus' life, I think we'll see that Jesus doesn't give us that option. He doesn't allow us to walk away thinking that he's a nice guy,、uh, just a nice guy, or just a, a prophet, a wise man. I think ultimately, you can only walk away with the conclusion that Jesus is God in the flesh. And I think as we see these three encounters, as we see Jesus、uh, with his power over nature, over the、um, Sickness and death, and over the demonic, we'll see Jesus's lordship. We'll see his power and his majesty, and、uh, and I suppose that's that's almost why we were worshiping him just a moment ago. And、um, the second thing, the second reason I think we need to look at this series is because as Christians, we sometimes get into the habit of minimising God's power, either because we、um, maybe we've been disappointed, we've prayed about something and haven't seen God move, or we want to kind of avoid disappointment in others, so we don't kind of emphasise this. But actually, I think we stop believing subtly. We didn't say it. But we stop believing God's、uh, power to work in our lives, either to work in us to change us to become more like Him, or to work through us in all sorts of different ways. Whether that be bringing the gospel、um, to people, or, or praying for healing, or whatever. So I think again, I think we need to look and come back to Jesus and see His power, His authority, His majesty, and I think also believe that actually He's left that with us. He's left, He's given us authority to go out into the world and to preach the gospel and to heal people and to、um, and to powerfully impact this this city. If we're to, you know, it's, September is coming. There's going to be a whole new influx of people coming into our city. If we're to,、um, to have any hope of changing this city. Of bringing the gospel to this city、um, and believing that God will change hearts and minds, we have to have a conviction, an expectation of God's power, of God's majesty, of God's authority, and of God's ability to change lives. And so, I think that's why I want to take us back to these these、um, these stories, these accounts. So,、um, if you turn with me to the Bibles、um, that you should or might have.、Um, It'll, I'll also read it out, so don't worry if you don't have a Bible in front of you.、Um, I'm just going to read、uh, Mark's Gospel,、uh, chapter four, verse thirty-five to forty-one. So, Book of Mark, verse,、uh, chapter four, verse thirty-five to forty-one. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, "Let us go across to the other side." And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. 
And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I just pray that we would get a real vision of who you are again this morning. Lord, that you would capture our hearts, that you would speak to us through your word, that we would understand and know more about who you are, and that we would recognize your power, your majesty, your authority, um, and that we would, we would go from fear to faith, that we would trust you with our whole lives and with each, each thing, each storm that we're experiencing. Amen. Okay, so where are we? Well, Jesus has been teaching and preaching in the north of Israel. He's been te- uh, teaching and preaching in this area called Galilee. And the crowds have gathered and been listening to him. They've seen him heal some people. So he's kind of gathered a, a kind of crowd of people who are, who are really interested in who this guy is and interested in what he has to say. And he's been teaching the crowds that day. But evening comes and he tells the disciples to, to, they're going to go on a boat and they're going to go to the other side of the Lake of Galilee. And, um, and so they get on the boat, they get in their boats, and they go, and they're on the way um, in the middle of the lake, presumably. And other bo- boats have joined them on the lake. But suddenly, a storm gets going. And this is relatively common on the Sea of Galilee, believe it or not. It's kind of a, a lower, uh, there's mountains all around it. So it's kind of a low, I don't know what the word is, but topography, is that the right word? Um, <laughs> so for whatever reason, ge- the geographers among you, uh, the meteorologists among you will know that that means it's a, it's a place which regularly has storms. But this isn't just a kind of run-of-the-mill storm. This is a really ferocious storm. We can tell that in a few ways. One, these, these guys are seasoned sailors. You know, many of them are, are fishermen. Jesus has just a, recruited them recently in the previous chapters to be his disciples. And yet they are scared. They're so scared, they're actually saying, do you not care that we're perishing? So they, they, they believe they're going to die. So this is, a, this is a great storm. And you can see the water's coming into the boat. Um, the waves are buffeting the ship. That feel, probably feels out of control. There's a sense they're not going to make it back to dry land. This is a, a real panic has hit the boat. They're, they're scared. But amidst all the, presumably the activity, you can imagine some of the disciples are kind of bailing water out of the boat and others are trying to, grasp the sail and and hope that they're going to get to dry land. Amidst all that activity, Jesus is in stark contrast. Jesus is sleeping in the middle of the boat. Amidst all this storm, he's sleeping. And and he's woken by them. And and immediately his response is almost quite matter-of-fact, almost a little bit casual in a way. He's not overawed by the storm, like the disciples who are fearing for their very lives. His reaction is quite simple. Speaks to the storm and he says, Peace, be still. And in a moment, the storm is stopped. It's not a gradual dying down. It's not just that the storm kind of slowly subsides. The storm stops in a moment. And actually, if you know, uh, if you've kind of been in a storm, you know that sometimes if the storm stops, the waves are going to still be really choppy around because the, the kind of the sea doesn't stop immediately once the storm, once the, the wind and, and the, the rain presumably has, has stopped. But actually, in the same moment as the storm stopping, the sea is like smooth as glass. It's a total contrast. And it cannot be explained by any other way except a miraculous um, power over nature, that Jesus has stopped this storm and has calmed the waves. 
And this is such a miraculous transformation, such a um, significant moment. The disciples are in awe of Jesus. They say to each other, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now, the disciples have witnessed firsthand Jesus' power. They've already seen him healing different people. Uh, They've seen him teaching with authority. But they've seen nothing like this. This is a moment where they've seen Jesus have power over nature. Just think, like, in all of history, human beings have have never quite conquered the seas, the waves, the, the storms. You know, being a fisherman has always been a dangerous pursuit because of that risk of, you know, one day the storm comes up, and you're, and you're um, overwhelmed by the waves, and you capsize, and you, and you die. And yet this man, Jesus, has a unique power to be able to control the wind and the waves, an authority over the wind and the waves. And this is a revelation. This is, this is news for the disciples. And the implications, I think, are clear, even though they're unsaid, that this is more than a man. This is God in the flesh. Mark wants you to, to feel, I think, the silence after the storm. You know, like the calm after the storm. He wants you to, to, to sit in that silence for a moment and just to feel the majesty that Jesus has just demonstrated, just to witness his authority and power. So amidst all of this scene um, where the disciples have been confronted with the wind and the waves, they've been confronted by their own fears. I think actually underlying this, this brief snapshot is actually, are actually two things, fear and faith. And those are the themes that we, I want to unpack this morning. You can see the fear there when they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus' response to them, why are you so afraid? As this danger erupts, as the disciples are close to death, the disciples' fear becomes clear, the fear for their own lives. They're, they're scared of death. And so there's this fear there, but there's also a call to faith. Jesus' response to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? We'll go and unpack for a moment, in a moment, what, what that means. What, what, what is, how is faith the solution to this fear? But before we do that, I want to say, actually, I think this, this is really relevant for Londoners. This whole question of fear, of anxiety, actually is a really present challenge for the city that we live in, for the people that we live around every day. We, like the disciples in this moment, experience fear, and actually, if we're honest, experience the same fear of death that the, uh, the disciples are experiencing in this moment. So I think, if, actually, if we were to, to look at our lives, if we were to pan out and think about our lives uh, this week or any other week, I think actually we would realize that many of the things we do, many of the ways we live, are actually our underlying motivation is fear. Think about the, uh, the fact that you keep checking your, you know, your WhatsApp and your social media, everything else like that. Um, yeah, I'm sure that part of it is the Facebook algorithm and the guys have worked out exactly how to make you go back and click the, the alerts and, and to get you there. Um, but also part of it is just a simple fear of missing out, a fear that we're not going to be included or that something's going on and we're not going to be involved. Um, or think about someone who, you know, is just saving, sa- saving money. That doesn't sound like it's a, that seems like a really benign and good thing to do, many people will say. But actually, maybe that's also motivated by fear for some of us. Maybe some of us are saving aggressively or thinking about our finances because actually we're worried that we won't have enough money. Or we, maybe we're at work and we, and we avoid saying some of the things we think or some of our opinions because we don't want to offend other people because we're scared of what other people think of us. And actually, ultimately, I think we all know in our lives that there are people who we can become fearful of 
actually people themselves, certain people in our lives, people we know, who we become scared of, of not just of what they think, but actually scared of them, scared of what they might do to us or, or what they think of us, or, and then we become intimidated. Actually, we live in a city that is full of anxiety and fear. Just think about the headlines of you know, Brexit, of impending economic doom, um, you know, maybe this weekend, impending nuclear doom. <laughs> I'm not uh, making a political point, but really just to say that the drumbeat, the underlying narrative of this city, the, kind of the, the information that fills our minds and, and kind of we, that we experience is, is often fear-inducing. It often, often creates a sense of anxiety. Actually, I would go even further and say fear is basically inevitable, that if you care about things in particular, so um, whatever you care about, because the future is fundamentally uncertain, because you can't be sure that whatever you care about, and I'm, I'm excluding here um, a, a, relation, a living relationship um, with God, but any, any kind of material thing you care about, actually the future is fundamentally uncertain. So therefore, it's natural that you're going to be fearful about that. So if you're someone who you know, cares about having enough money, then actually you can't know for certain that you're going to have as much money as you need, as much money as you want when you're later in life. My, my, um, my parents, my dad, is, uh, both, both are immigrants to this country, um, and as a result, money's always been a thing that they've focused on, kind of making sure that they have enough money. And, and actually, my dad spent his whole life, he's an accountant, he spent his life uh, kind of making sure he had enough money. And now he's a kind of comparatively well-off man. And, and if you looked at his finances, you'd say, you have no need to worry. But actually, that habit, that... that uh, anxiety that's driven him his whole life has not gone. That actually, even when he has enough money, he still worries about whether he's going to have enough money. That's still at the back of his mind. That's still driving his decisions. Think about love. Say you're someone who cares about being in a relationship with other people, of having, of having friends. I mean, that's basically all of us. Um, then you're going to be asking yourself those questions. Are these people going to like me in the future? Is my significant other still going to want to be with me in, in 20 years' time? You know, will my boyfriend break up with me next week? Or success. Say you're someone who cares about what position you have in life or where, how successful you are. Then you're going to be worrying about, you know, am I going to get the next promotion? Or am I going to make sure, I'm, I'm, is the company still going to want to employ me next week? And so we ask ourselves all these questions. Actually, fear and anxiety, if we're honest, is the underlying uh, drumbeat in our lives. It's, it's, it's there in our subconscious, even if we don't want to admit it. More specifically, it's not just um, fear the disciples are uh, dealing with. In this, in this snapshot, in this encounter, but actually, it's a fear of death. When they say, Rabbi, do you not care that we're perishing? They're basically saying, do you not care that we're dying? It's, it's actually a fear of death here, a fear that, that this is the end for them, that manifests itself in this story. And I think actually, again, we might not want to admit it, we might not be conscious of it, but I think that actually affects us today. So that I think the way our society avoids talking about death the way we almost try to avoid it and kind of put it away. And uh, maybe, you know, if someone brings it up, you might be saying, say, do you really need to bring that up? Like, do we really have to think about that? I remember when I um, was uh, at a big American corporation called, um, its nationality is irrelevant, uh, but we did, there was one of these companies that did a kind of a day of volunteering. You know, like every, every year we do a day of volunteering. And, um, and th- I went with a group of people who did a day of volunteering to an old people's home. And what was really interesting is how many of my colleagues afterwards were just really shaken by the experience. You think going to an old people's home was normal, but actually, I think what was really, really difficult with them was coming, to, coming face-to-face with, with where their trajectory was, that they live in a world where they're surrounded by young people and actually they're not around what it, people who are growing older and even on the verge of death. And to be confronted like that, they, they didn't like that. Actually, we kind of tried to shut death away in our society, but actually death is a reality of life, and it's a reality we can't escape. 
I think the fear of death, and particularly a conscious belief that death and there's an, and in no afterlife, the kind of prevailing secular worldview that we have,、um, I think that influences us more than we think. And I think there's two ways ways we can see that in our society.、Uh, one is hedonism. You know, you know the people in in London, the Londoners, your friends and and work colleagues who are living for the moment, who are saying, you know, actually.、Um, Life is short. I can't control what happens after life, but I know that. So therefore, I've got to enjoy life and make sure I make the most of today. That's such a common reaction to. And actually, that that hedonism, that kind of carpe diem, seize the day, make sure I'm as happy as possible today because I can't control the future, is actually because they're living in the light of、uh, the shadow of death. They know that death is coming, and so actually, that kind of hedonism, that kind of seize the moment, enjoy today, is actually a reaction to the fear of death.、Um, The second way I think that manifests itself in the way our、uh, way people live in this city is that、um, millennial angst, that desire to achieve something, to leave an impact, to leave your mark, to leave your legacy. And this is something that I see across my workplace. So many people saying, "What's my impact going to be?" Every job advert out there says, "Your impact is this," because we're because we're we're living in a world where we say, "Well, I'm, I've no, I know, I don't know of any afterlife. I know that death is one day coming." And so I have to make a mark now. I have to make my life count.、Um, I have one life to live, and so I must must make my mark. So actually, this fear of death is something we all all experience. Something that is is prevailing in our society, even if we don't talk about it. And so actually, this 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 is a pain for us. We don't enjoy having a, having this fear. And so, what's the solution then to this fear? Who will? Who will rid us of this fear? What's the what's the answer to this fear that we that we we experience, just as the disciples experience it in this encounter? Well, Jesus tells the disciples the reason for their fear is their lack of faith. If the disciples have faith, they won't fear. So faith is the antidote to their fears. Faith is the antidote to their fears. But what is this faith? That Jesus is calling us and the disciples to have. I think often the word faith is quite hard to understand. It's quite opaque. It's often misunderstood. What does what does faith really mean? So I think we need to unpack what it means to have faith, and in doing so, I think we'll see how faith is the antidote to our greatest fears. I want to tell you three things about faith. I want to say faith is personal in Christ. Faith is、uh, trusting in God's goodness, and faith. Is trusting in God's power and in Jesus's power and authority. So faith is personal. Faith is、uh, in God's goodness, and faith is in God's power and authority. First of all, faith is personal. Often、um, we look at faith and we think of it like an abstract concept, like a kind of thing that some people have. You know, oh, we, I wish I had faith like you. I wish, you know, faith is kind of like almost like you know, you've got different. He's got blue eyes, blonde hair, and he's got faith. It's kind of like a, 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 a characteristic that someone has. Some people have and some people don't. But actually, I think faith is something we all have. We put faith in someone or something. Faith is a kind of relationship between us and something else. Let me explain. If you say, "Look, I need a good recipe for chocolate brownies," you might say, "Well, I have faith in Nigella. Nigella, her cakes are brilliant. So I'm going to go and find her cookery book off my shelf, and I'm going to find out if she's got a recipe for chocolate brownies." Or you might say, "Well, you know, at work, you know, we asked this guy to deliver and to do a really good email marketing campaign for us, but actually, I'm, I'm losing faith in him." I'm, I, what you're really saying is, "I don't really trust him to deliver." So faith essentially is trust. And I think actually, when Jesus says to the disciples, "Do you still not have faith?" What he's really saying is, "Do you still not trust me?" Faith is simply putting your trust in something else. And Jesus is not asking us、um, to put our 
our trust in people or our trust in institutions or, or even our trust in church. Jesus is asking us to trust him. What does it mean then to trust Jesus? Well, to trust him, I think first and foremost, is to believe that he is who he says he is, i.e. God in the flesh, our Lord, um, that he is the one who should be rightfully in control of our lives. To trust someone is to say, look, actually, yeah, I believe. I believe you are authentically who you are. So to trust Jesus is to say, yes, you are who you are, so to speak, that you are actually the one who's rightfully in control of my life. And once you understand and kind of trust that he is who he says he is, then it naturally follows that you put him in control of your life because you realize that he is the Lord. He is God in the flesh on earth. So if you're someone who um, is not a Christian and you're saying, look, I, you know, I don't know what to make of Christianity. There's all these kind of different questions about um, ethics that aren't really in line with the way I, my moral compass and questions about sexuality or actually I've seen how Christians have behaved in the past and that doesn't really, that's not very attractive to me. I think actually the, the question you need to ask yourself is not, those, those are all kind of secondary questions. The first question you need to ask yourself is, can I trust Jesus? Is he who he says he is? And the best way to answer that question, the best way to understand, to validate the, uh, the question of whether Jesus is who he says he is, is to in- encounter him in the Gospels, to hear what he says and to um, see what he does and, uh, and, to, and to answer the question, who is this man? Is he actually God in the flesh? Is it this, this in, tremendous claim from Christians? And to answer that question by looking at the Gospels. But what does this mean for our fears? What does it mean for our fears that faith is personal, that faith is about trusting in Jesus? Well, it means once you know him, once you trust him, once you believe he is who he says he is, then you know that he cares for you, that there's an invitation to trust him, to trust Jesus with your anxieties. In 1 Peter 5, um, He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties onto him because he cares for you. This is our first way that faith is an antidote to fear, because because faith is a personal trust in Jesus. And with that trust in Jesus, with an acknowledgement of who he is, it's it's an openness, an invitation to cast your anxieties onto him to hand over your fears, to, to not to worry about them yourself, but to say, actually, God, this is too big for me. I need you to have control of my life. I need you to have control of this thing. And I'm going to trust you with this, um, with this anxiety, anxiety that I'm dealing with. Just think, this is something that you see throughout the tenor of the New Testament. Think about uh, Matthew chapter 6, when, when Jesus uh, is talking about food and clothing. And he says, do not be anxious about what you eat or what you uh, put on. I'm, I'm not quoting directly. Um, because your heavenly Father knows what you need. So that same tenor of knowing that actually because you are his son, because you're in his family, that means you know that he cares for you, that he knows that you can cast your anxieties onto him. I think the invitation to trust God with our anxieties, to say, I don't have to worry about this because you are in control, is, is easier because we know the person of Jesus. Because faith is personal, because faith is not in some kind of abstract concept, because faith is actually me saying I trust Jesus, it's easier to trust Jesus with my anxieties, with my fears, with all all the things I'm struggling with. You know, you've seen and heard his track record in the Gospels. You've seen his compassion for the sick. You've seen his compassion for Lazarus' sisters after Lazarus has died. You've seen his compassion for the crowd when he sees them and says, they're like sheep um, without a shepherd. He's seen that he's ultimately faithful to his promises um, when, on the, when he is willing to go and ultimately sacrifice his life on the cross. 
So because we've seen him, because you've seen him and known him in the Gospels, it's easier to trust him. We're not asking you to trust your anxieties over to a faceless corporation to say, you know, this organization has my best interests at heart. We're not asking you even to trust your anxieties or trust your your fears into um, a God who you've never, never seen in the flesh. Actually, we're asking you to trust your anxieties into Jesus, who's put a face on God, who's made it possible for you to look at him and say, can I trust you with my anxieties? Can I trust you with my fears? And we see this with the disciples, actually. We see that Jesus' uh, claim to the disciples is uh, one that's based on his track record and one that they know him. When he says to them, have you still no faith? It's almost like, have you, have you not seen what I've done? Have you not seen how I've walked with you? Have you not seen what, uh, like, who I am? Actually, there's a track record there he's calling upon. He's saying to the disciples, you've seen me. So when we're worrying about things, when we're fretting, when we're de- dealing with different fears, actually we know because we've walked with Jesus, because we've seen him in the Gospels, we've seen him, we've seen his compassion, his love for us, so we can hand over our anxieties and our fears to him. Secondly, I think when we see the person of Jesus, we experience and we witness his love for us. This love, this agape, this unconditional love for us is the best antidote to our fears. And we see this throughout the Gospels again. We see it in the compassion, the examples of compassion that I've mentioned. We see it on the cross, his willingness to sacrifice his life for us. And when we understand the love of God, when we understand the truth, the kind of inalienable truth, the truth that cannot be rendered from us, that we are loved by God and that we've been included in his family, I think this is such a wonderful antidote to our fears. So think back to some of the fears that we mentioned. Success. Say you're worried about whether you're going to get promoted. The knowledge that you're loved by God, the knowledge that you are included in his family, is the best antidote to that fear because actually says, okay, actually, you know what? If I, if I do experience failure, if I don't get promoted, it's not the end of the world because I'm already included in his family. So suddenly all those other things that you might have a tendency to worry about, all those other kind of waves of life, those different things that might otherwise lead us to kind of experience different, different um, levels of joy and anxiety, it's almost like we've got a life jacket. It's almost like, yeah, those, those waves will still come. There'll be difficult things. There'll be good things. We're not expecting that suddenly life feels kind of just a smooth pane of glass, so to speak. But actually... There will be ups and downs, but in the ups and downs, you have a life jacket. You have an ultimate truth that you are included in God's family, that you're loved by him. And that truth, that reality, is more significant than all the other things that you might worry about. So if you're worried that you might, might break up with your girlfriend, that might be a really difficult thing, but it says, actually, I know that I'm already loved by Jesus, so this isn't quite the end of the world. This, this, this love, uh, this knowledge of his, uh, being in his family is the best antidote to fear. So that's, that's the fact that faith is personal. Next one is faith is believing in God's goodness. To believe, um, to experience this faith that Jesus is calling us to is not just to believe intellectually that he existed, not just to assent that, yes, there's a personal God and, I'm, and I can know him, but to believe that he is good and that he cares for you. And it's implicit in the faith that Jesus is calling the disciples to, um, to have. Um, it's, a, it's a belief that, that ultimately God is good for me. So you see in the passage, the disciples weren't questioning Jesus' power but his goodness, when they said to him, don't you care that we're perishing? They're actually subtly saying, God, you don't really care about us. You're not really good. And actually that, that uh, belief, that underlying feeling that ultimately God's not really good or ultimately that God doesn't really care about me actually is, is way more common in the church than you realize. Actually, that's, that, that attitude, that, will, that kind of underlying subtle be, um, belief that God ultimately isn't good 
is, um, is right there at the beginning in Adam and Eve in the fall. See, their first, the, the fall, the first sin, actually wasn't a belief that God didn't exist. It was actually that his commands weren't good that ultimately he was holding back from them something that was better, that he ultimately his commands couldn't be trusted. So actually, behind almost all sin, I would say, is this same subtle belief that God isn't good, that something about his commands isn't good for you. So um, think about someone who's, you know, you're on Facebook and you're, and you're coveting, you're desiring something that you don't have. Like, you know, you're on Facebook and you're like, oh, I wish I had the hair like that person. Or, you know, you're on Facebook and be like, I wish I had, uh, you know, a house like that person. Or I wish I'd achieved the academic success that that person has. That's something we all experience. Actually, what really is going on there inside that, in that, what that is coveting is actually a feeling that what I've been given, what I have in life, isn't enough. In some way, those other things, I need them to be happy. So almost like God's, God's lot for me, God's provision for me is, is insufficient. Well, think about like if you, I don't know, struggling with an addiction to pornography. What you're really saying is, I need this thing to make me feel better, even outside of everything that God's provided. So it's actually the same thing. All the way through, we see behind sin, the same actual lack of trust in God, lack of trust in God's goodness, that his commands are good for us. And actually, I would say the same thing is going on with our fears. When we have our fears, actually, we're doing exactly the same thing. When you're worrying about money, when you're saying, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to have enough, and you know, there's a difference between like, looking at your finances and saying, okay, am I like, doing an appraisal of your financial future? But if you're kind of constantly going over in your mind thinking, oh, gosh, I'm not going to have enough, I'm not going to have enough, and, and, and worrying about that, actually, what that is, partly, often motivated, is from a kind of belief, uh, a worry that God's not going to be able to provide for you. I, he can't be trusted to provide for you fa- financially. Or you're worrying about whether people like you, and whether you're going to have a, you know, a, fam- uh, you know, whether you're gonna have a, a, a family, so to speak, a, a, um, a relational network around you. Actually, what you're saying is, I'm not sure I can trust God to provide community to meet my relational needs. The essence of fear, at the very heart of what fear is, I think it's not trusting in God's goodness for all the uncertainties and the messiness of life. How do we get there? Well, I think... I think often it's just disappointment. Often we've, we've gone through a difficult time, we're experiencing something difficult or like some kind of lack of something, and we say, where was God? You know, or, we, or we've prayed about something or we, we experienced some tremendous tragedy and we, and we say, actually, God didn't meet my needs then. I, I, felt, I felt lack. And so we kind of end up, it's very subtle, it's not something we would even say necessarily to other people, but underneath us, we stop praying about that thing because we say, well, if God didn't really meet my needs then, he's not going to meet my needs now. Or it's just simple, sinful self-reliance. The idea that actually, you know, I'm the best one to be in control of my life. I'm the, I'm the best one who, um, to sort out my finances rather than God. I think the real problem underlying this is that we're reading onto God from our circumstances. So we experience something difficult and we look and then we say, well, if we experience something difficult, then it must be that God is like that. So we're projecting onto God from our circumstances. Because I'm having a difficult time at work, and it's been months, and it's been really difficult, and people have been really mean to me, God must have forgotten about me. Or because I'm going through this sickness, God doesn't heal. And I'm not, that's not to minimize our experience, but I think the essence of faith is running in the exact opposite direction. The essence of tr- faith is trusting and believing in God's goodness, even in amidst the difficulties. Even when you're like the disciples in this account, in the midst of the storm, the essence of faith is saying, actually, I trust God that you are good, even amidst this difficulty that I'm experiencing. And this is something we see throughout the Bible. I look at uh, David in Psalm 59. Um, I'll just turn to that. 
And basically, in this psalm, David is being assailed by the, um, I think it's Saul sent some men to kill him. So he's in a lot of danger, and he's in obviously a difficult situation. But what's really interesting is in the midst of this difficult situation that David's in, he's got tremendous hope in God. He says, he's talking about the men who, who are coming to kill him. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you are God and my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. That is the essence of what it means to have faith to trust God. In the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of the things that are the, the rocky, the storms of life, saying, actually, I can trust you, God, because you are faithful. And I, I see a couple of examples where I think I can see this so beautifully. When you have this conviction, I think it's such a, a helpful, such an essential conviction for walking through the difficulties of life. I think about a man called Adrenaim, I don't actually know, know how to say his first name, but Adrenaim Judson. He's a, he was a missionary who went to Burma, I think around in the 1800s, and he, and he took the gospel there. And it was a, he lived a life of tremendous sacrifice. You know, it wasn't easy. There was, you know, he went there not, not knowing whether he'd come back. He eventually, you know, disease was really kind of prevalent there. And I think uh, in the end, up, he ended up losing uh, one wife, then remarried, and actually then lost his second wife. Um, and it was a tremendous tremendous challenge. And in the the midst of all of that, they saw lots of people come to faith. They saw churches planted. They saw the gospel take root in Burma for the first time. It's a tremendously inspiring story of a life of sacrifice. But you might say, well, how did this man get through what, what sounds like such a hardship? And I think it was his conviction and trust that God is good, even amidst difficult circumstances. And this is what he wrote. I just think it's the most beautiful letter. On March the 11th um, to a friend. I've re- um, so he's actually, sorry, I should add, he's just had his house burnt down uh, and, um, and lost all his possessions. <laughs> um, so, you know, just, just so you know. Um, I've recommenced the work of the dictionary. He's translating, um, he's done the Gospels, he's done the Bible, and now he's translating the dictionary for the Burmese people uh, in English and Burmese, um, which has been suspended nearly two years. So he hasn't been working on it for two years. Why has this grievous interruption been permitted and all this precious time lost? And why are those... And why are our houses and property allowed to be burned up? And why are those most dear to us and most qualified to be useful to the cause torn from our arms and dashed into the grave and all their knowledge and qualification with them? Because infinite wisdom and love will have it so. Because it is best for us and best for them and best for the cause and best for the interests of eternity that it should be so and blessed be God we know it and are thankful and rejoice and say glory be to God so what got through Mr Judson through the most difficult circumstances was a conviction in God's sovereignty the conviction in God's goodness that ultimately whatever circumstances they experienced that ultimately God could be trusted that God could be trusted as they walked through these most difficult storms in pursuit of his purposes. A bit closer to home, I'm, we have a friend who is a teacher um, in North London and uh, at Revelation Church, which um, some of you might have uh, been to, or loosely part of the same network, New Front, also a New Frontiers Church. And, um, and she, she went in to teach first and um, had a really tough time of it in her, in her school. And she describes this, her experience of learning to find God in the midst of a really difficult, difficult job. 
Two years of high stress levels, lots of change, violent students, personal humiliation, and complete exhaustion taught me more than I will ever teach those in my classroom. It was certainly not the idyllic view of teaching I had previously imagined. God humbled me, softened me, toughened me up, opened my eyes, and grew me dramatically in my time at that school. It was a painful process, but a crucial one. I had to work through a lot of questions. Why had God placed me in the worst school possible, especially when I could easily have been placed somewhere else? If God was a good father who wanted to protect me, why was I experiencing regular physical intimidation and assault? If God promised to give me all I need, why was I running on empty? And God showed me that he was in the midst of it with me. He truly was Emmanuel, God with us. The lunch times when I was crying and praying at my desk and things were being thrown up my windows, he was with me. The fun nights out with my friends that I missed out on in order to make sure I had my work done, he was with me. He never left me or abandoned me. Again, Laura learned the the truth of God's goodness in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. And this is the essence of the trust, the faith that Jesus is calling us to have. Thirdly then, faith. So we talked about faith being personal, faith being um, in God's goodness. And thirdly, faith is in God's power and authority. Jesus' call to faith in this passage necessarily includes the belief and the conviction that he is powerful. His rebuke to the disciples is basically him saying, don't you believe that I'm powerful enough to stop this? You didn't need to fear. Implicit in Jesus' assurance to the disciples is a conviction that he is powerful enough for any storm that the disciples face, both literally in this story and in our lives today. So too, Jesus is calling us to have faith, to have a trust in his power and authority. This isn't just a a power for the kind of New Testament times. I think this this same power and authority that Jesus has is present in our lives. I see this a couple of times in the the emerging church and the people who started to follow Jesus. Um, In Acts 4.33, it says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And then later on, and many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. We see in the book of Acts, the church stepping out in power. The church praying for people, the church seeing people healed, the church preaching powerfully and seeing people's hearts won to faith, seeing people follow Jesus for the first time. There's an expectation that they should expect to see God working powerfully among them. And I think we should carry that same expectation, that same expectation, that same power that we see Jesus um, demonstrating in this passage, we should carry that expectation into our lives today. What does this mean for our fears then? Well, the first thing is that this truth of God's power and his authority is our antidote to our fears because we know not that necessarily we won't go through storms, but ultimately Jesus is stronger and more powerful than any enemy that we face. And that means two things. One, it means if he can stop it, if he chooses to stop it, so to speak, then that's his will, then, then, then that's great. And we can pray with a genuine conviction as we go through the storms of life that God can stop those things. As we, as we suffer in, in sickness and as we uh, walk through difficult relationships, we can pray with an expectation that God can bring healing, that God can heal relationships, that God is living and active and working through us and in our lives. But also, that if he chooses not to stop those storms, if he chooses not to bring those storms to an end, that he's good and that that's his sovereign will. And we can trust him right in the midst of the storm. So I think about um, when I first moved to London, I had a very difficult boss. He was um, 
kind of he didn't really give so much concern for kind of our working hours. So he would like come in on Friday at 4 p.m. and just give me a weekend of work, and like that wouldn't that wouldn't be like a kind of issue to him. That was kind of normal. Um, and actually, at one point, he kind of basically told me that if we made a mistake on this project, I would go to prison. And um, <laughs> slightly in my naivety, basically, it was like a public. We were management consultants, and we were doing this. We were assisting on this deal, and this, the stock was publicly traded. And he and basically, in my naivety. Um, I believed him, <laughs> and so I was kind of working away on this. I remember one weekend where I was working away、um, on the weekend and like doing this discounted cash flow analysis that I'd never done before, and just thinking if I make a mistake here, I'm going to prison. And, <laughs> and of course, it was ridiculous.、Um, but but that was the fear that got into me. That I, I'm working with this guy. You know, he would I, like you know every day. It's, I had no. No, no certainty that I was going to be able to go home on time, because, and he could ruin my plans in a moment. And so I suddenly just started getting into this real cycle of fear that, like, that David, sorry, I shouldn't have said his name, but、um, <laughs> um, that he would,、um, that he would, that he would hurt me, that he would kind of impinge upon my life. And I remember going to、um, going to have dinner with my friend one Saturday evening、um, on, on an evening of a weekend of working, and、um, I just realized we came to the realization that actually. This guy couldn't hurt me. That this guy ultimately, that Jesus was my protector, and so that there was nothing that this guy could do that could ultimately、uh, either God would allow it. So maybe I was like, okay, even if God allows me to go to prison, I can serve Him and I can follow Him. Or actually, Jesus won't allow anything that He doesn't want to come to pass. And it was that time, it was that moment, that experience that I truly came to understand what it means that God is our protector. And、you see that all the way through the Psalms, and it's rare that we feel that people are kind of like our enemies, like David's talking about, where people are coming to kill him. But I think that idea and that conviction that God is our protector and that God is more powerful than anything we face is actually a really powerful one.、Um, so the Christian hope isn't that we won't that we won't face difficulties, but it's that we worship a God who is more powerful than anything we face. The final thing I want to say about how faith is the antidote to fear is that. Jesus has conquered death. It's not not quite in this passage, but I think the disciples are going to find out. They're going to see、um, when Jesus is resurrected that ultimately their hope is not just that Jesus is powerful authority over death in this instance, but actually that Jesus has what we call global power and authority. That Jesus is not just a kind of powerful,、um, kind of spiritual、uh, prophet, but he's actually God in the flesh, sovereign over all things, and including sovereign over death. So, the, the centre of the Christian hope is a conviction in salvation, a belief that Jesus has completed the work on the cross, and that we are forgiven and we are included in His family, and that ultimately this is for eternity. And what this means, this I think, this resurrection hope. We often talk about the cross, and we talk about the,、uh, the kind of、um, justification, the idea that we've been we've been forgiven on the cross. That's so important. But something we we kind of forget, we don't really talk about very much, is the idea that the cross is victory, that the cross is Jesus's victory over death, that death has been destroyed on the cross, that Jesus has won a victory for all of us, which means that we don't need to fear death. We don't need to to worry about making an impact today because just because our life is 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 going to be over in twenty years. Because ultimately, we know that Jesus has won for us an eternal future with God. And this fear, this 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 is actually worth almost more than all the other uh, uh, antidotes put together. This is like an antidote to our ultimate fear. Our ultimate fear of death 
has been destroyed because we know that we're going to spend eternity with God when heaven comes down on earth. And I think actually this should make Christians really fearless people. This should actually mean this is why guys like Judson can go to uh, Burma with saying, look, I might die. You know, the story so many times, like people go out there, they're there for a few years, and then a sickness comes and maybe wipes out a whole family. But the, the, the courage that these guys can, uh, can take to go to Burma and to willing to sacrifice their life is because they're ultimately fearless unto death. They love not their lives unto death. That They are willing to believe that even if they die, they have an eternal future with God. So this, this, uh, this, n- this assurance, this, this truth that we can trust God, even ultimately with death, this knowledge that actually death is not the end, is such a wonderful assurance for us. Ultimately, anybody out there, anybody can destroy your body, but they cannot destroy your soul. They cannot destroy that living relationship with God. You might worry, you know, like, we're Christians, we might worry that we're kind of being marginalized, there'll be careers that maybe aren't open to us in the future, we're worried like our role in public life is shrinking, but we know the end, we know the end of the story, Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead, and actually we're going to spend eternity reigning with him, so we don't have to fear a kind of momentary loss of, of, of significance in society, because ultimately we're going to spend eternity with him. So then, what's there for us to do? What's our response to all of this? How do we respond to Jesus's calling to have faith? I think the, the most important thing to remember is that faith is a choice. Faith is often seen like something you ha- some people have and some people don't. But actually, faith is simply a choice to trust Jesus. So I think about uh, the two things that remind me of this. Marriage. marriage. When you get married, you are choosing to trust the other person. You're saying, I trust you that you're going to be faithful to the promises that you make at the altar. Or when you make a, a, a business contract, you're saying, I trust you that you're going to provide the services that we need at the, um, at what, what, as you've said you would. So you're choosing to put your trust in that person or that other business partner. In the same way, we can choose to put our trust in God. We can choose to say, I'm going to trust you for this thing. So you might be someone who actually, you don't trust God at all. You don't trust Jesus. You don't believe that he is who he says he is. But that invitation is for you to put your trust in him, to say, I trust you. I believe who you are. But equally, I think as Christians, there are, there are often it's part of our lives. Often we, we segment and there are parts of our lives that we don't really trust God with. You might be someone who say, yeah, actually, I trust that God will provide for me. I trust that I'm going to be okay financially, but I don't trust that he's got any purpose for me. I don't really trust that he's got a, a kind of a way to use me for in, in this life. Or you might be saying, actually, yeah, I, I trust him that he's got a calling, but I don't believe he can trust. I don't trust him for relationships. I've been hurt. People haven't really been very loving to me, so I don't really trust him in that respect. And I think I experience this quite a lot where I've kind of just, as I'm walking through life, I suddenly realize that I'm particularly anxious and fearful about something in particular. And what's happening is it means I've kind of walled that off. I'm not really trusting God with that thing. I'm not really, I'm, I'm kind of putting it onto my own shoulders. And so actually the calling for us, the response for us is to repent and to believe. It's actually a choice to turn around, to say, actually, I'm, go- I'm not, I'm going to stop uh, unbelieving, so to speak. I'm going to stop not trusting you, and I'm going to choose to trust you again with, with this thing, with this part of my life. Um, I'm going to choose to put, my, um, to put this in, in, my, um, in your hands. So I want to, um, just to lead us really in response to this, to give you an opportunity, if there are parts of your life that, um, if you guys, the band wants to come up, that'd be great. Um, I want to give you guys an opportunity really to respond to this, to, to actually to turn over part of your lives to him, to say, look, I know, I've, I know I've been putting this into my hands, but I want to put it into your hands, God, and I want to trust you with it. And I want to give you an opportunity through the storm 
to say that you will rescue, that you will deliver me, that you are good. Yeah, Lord, we, um, we want to trust you, Lord Jesus. We want to hand over uh, to you the things that we've been worrying about, our fears, Lord. Lord, we want, to, we want to say that you alone are the one who can be trusted with our fears. You alone are the one who knows us, who's got power, power to take us through the storm, power to destroy the storm, power to stop the storm, power over all things and over death, Lord. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We want to say you are good, Lord Jesus. We want to trust your promises, Lord. Why don't you pray with me? Just hand over to him those things that you are holding on to. Hand over to him the, the, the lack of faith you've had and choose to trust him again with the things that you have not been trusting him with. Turn around from, those, from your, your kind of self-dependence, de- self so to speak said turn it over to him choose to cast your anxieties under him cast those fears under him as we take communion in a moment um, I want to take that an opportunity really just to remind yourself of his ultimate faithfulness um, as we take the bread and wine it's a reminder of his ultimate willingness to sacrifice his life for us He's ultimately faithful. He's faithful in the storm. He's faithful whatever circumstances you're experiencing, whatever is causing you to fear, he is faithful in that. And we can feel that. We can taste that even as we take bread and wine. Lord Jesus, would this be to us, your body and blood? Would we know your promises of your faithfulness as we take communion? Would we celebrate those as we worship you now? We just hand over our fears to you, Lord Jesus. And we choose to trust you again.